Welcome to the Stark and Main Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Green. Our theme this week is introduction. And our featured guest is William Paul Young. Hey, welcome to Stark and Main. My name is Jordan Green. And my name is Dan Gummel. I am Maurice Cowley. And we're just meeting here to talk through the introduction to our episode. Yeah. Later, later on, we're, I'm going to have a conversation with William Paul Young, author of the highest selling book in Oregon history, The Shack. Have you guys read it? I have read it. I watched the movie. Oh, okay. See, I've never seen the movie, so oh, really? it's perfect balance. Do the plots align? Well, we I wouldn't, wouldn't know. know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. Hey, in the beginning, there's a dude Let's walk through who it. then goes right. to a shack. Yeah, that's roughly how the movie goes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Did they what? have the ladybug in the movie? They do. Okay. Yeah. What's the ladybug? I don't remember that. It's like what? the serial killer's calling card. Oh, yes, the ladybug yeah. killer. The little ladybug killer. Yeah. I know, it was, it's been a while. Um, yeah. What's this show about, Jordan, for this, the listeners? This show is about... The, it. It's kind of a... It's a personal project on on, on my part, right? I, I love the city of Portland, the state of Oregon... And I love the church. Mm-hmm. And those those things don't often get linked together. Uh, but I think that, you know, because we're known as being this very unchurched place. Yeah. And a lot of Christians in other parts of the country think <laughs> that it's evil mm-hmm. here. Uh, and But really, we have a really flourishing faith community. Christians, Muslims, Jewish people, mm-hmm. all sorts of faiths here. And... There's something to that it's not the default state, that it's not the state religion mm-hmm. that makes it kind of unique. And uh, I've got plenty of stories about this, but one of my main points is if you take out the faithful from Oregon, you're missing just a huge, a huge, awesome segment of our of our population, uh, musicians, writers, athletes, mm-hmm. politicians, whoever, like mm-hmm. you, you name a field. Uh, there are there are believers at work doing good work there, mm-hmm. and so I don't know. I, I want to integrate these two worlds a little bit. Yeah, that's that's where I think we're going to head. So I think that's a worthy mission, man. I'm Thank excited. you. Thank you. I I hope it's a good one. I'm Maurice, stoked. You've yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Maurice, for using our Oregon lexicon. <laughs> that's not a word I use all the time. Just for you, uh, Maurice. You grew up here, yeah. Oh, I did in in what part of the city? I grew up in the north. Okay, north North Portland. Okay, how how did that that did you feel those tensions growing up between the church and the city at large? Yeah, I grew up in North Portland. I grew up right by Jeff or Jefferson High School. For those of you who don't know that we call it Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, we and this is like before people were coming to kick it in Mississippi on Killingsworth, Alberta. Um, it was, I, I felt the tension the most in the kind of in reverse of most people. I think that instead of being like, well, the church isn't around, we felt like we were raised in a space where we're like, this neighborhood is dangerous. And so we're going to find sanctuary in the church This Mm. is where we're going to hang out. This is where we're going to get our influence, our guidance. This is where... Like we're going to be safe, um, and that those were the messages from my family of like, nah, we're not, we're not going to be a part of this city world. We're going to be a part of this church world, 
And that was, I feel like that was the tension that I experienced the most growing up. Was your church in your neighborhood? Ish. So I went to a church that was uh, on, well, now it's on MLK. So it was in Northeast, but not North. Okay. Um, and it was a multicultural place to kick it. So Okay. So that was part of your, you were connected to that, mm-hmm. to the interracial community through the church primarily and and not around, not with your neighbors necessarily. Not with my neighbors, not. Okay. We, our neighbors were, like there were shootings in our neighborhood. There were drugs being dealt in our neighborhood. Um, and my parents were very cautious of how we engaged with the people around us. I think for, um, over concerns that that would be a pull that would kind of like suck us into. Sure. A, a certain type of living that they were not excited about. I mean, I can, yeah, I can see the tension. Yeah. But it is, it is also, you know, you want, you want to be engaged and connected mm-hmm. with that. Do, do you wish that you'd been more connected with it in retrospect? Yes. In, so a couple of years ago, I was in a class, uh, a writing class, and we took a walking tour of North Portland and we walked straight down my street. Like we walked right past my house. And the woman who was leading this tour had story after story. Just these people lived here. These people live there. Hmm. This guy lived here. And it's just like we're running down my street. And I didn't know any of these things, right? Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. approximately the same age as me. And so she's talking about experience from like my, when I would have been there, right? Hmm. And I'm like, I, I don't know any of this. Like at this place, it outside of specific memories that are tied to me, right? Like this is my house. I have memories in this yard. I have memories on Jeff's baseball field. I have no recollection of anything else that happened on that street. And, or like no names to put with no mm. faces, no nothing. And yeah. It's just like, okay, that's, that mm. feels like a miss. And there's a, even as I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here in hindsight, right? So my, I don't necessarily fault my parents for how we were raised. Sure. Like, I think they were trying to do the best they could by us. Um, but I think that it highlights this, like we, for both communities, you, you miss if you're not yes. going to try to be engaged with what's going on on the other side. Right. For, for me, I have a, there's a huge hole that could have been just a real rich tapestry of North Portland. And I feel like when, when the community at large is like, there's no religion here. Like they're missing a part of the tapestry, right? Like, yeah. Right. You don't get the whole picture if you're not willing to see the whole picture. Yes. I, that's beautifully put. Thank you. Paul Young. Thank yes. you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, love being here. Not uh, hard to find, but you know, it is little, we're, we're kind as of they said, a little hidden gem. Yes, Amago is tucked, tucked down here in the, in the inner southeast. Mm-hmm. But thank you for arriving and finding parking. That's another challenge. Yep, yep, it was, and I'm hopefully I can get out of there. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Uh, you're you're our first guest, so just thank Woo-hoo! you so much for coming in and and talking with us. It's an honor to be a first guest. Well, it's an honor to have you because I I think I was trying to figure out the math on this. You have the best. You have the highest selling book in Oregon history. Wouldn't I think that's right? I think so. Yeah, yeah I, I think don't think right. I don't think anyone's reached that level. So, um, anyway, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. I I wanted to ask you the first question. I wanted to ask you was um, 
what brought you to Oregon? What? Ah, good question. Yes. And I haven't pre-read the question, so I have no idea what you're going to ask me, which okay. is great. And uh, so I was going to school in Saskatchewan, and I'm a first-born missionary kid, preacher's kid, going to the school that my parents had gone to when they met in, in central Canada. And... Um, and because I didn't know what else to do with my life, you know, I was trying to figure out how to even survive in a, in a white world and in a Western world. And, and uh, I went there, it's a four-year theology degree, and I, I was in graduating my third year. I was junior class president. I was the top student in the school. You know, shame causes you to perform incredibly well. And, uh, and uh, you know, I had this little perfectionist thing going on. So... Um, uh, at the end of the school year, they had scholarships, and I was paying my own way through. In fact, I was a rock and roll disc jockey for CKCK Radio in Regina, Saskatchewan. I, as part of how I was paying my way through Bible school, which was a little bit of an oxymoron. You were DJing as, as your a way rock through and, Bible college. Yeah. Okay. All I right. know. How weird, right? Yeah. Missionary kids can get away with a bunch of stuff, especially in a denomination where missions is sort of the top tier. Yes. And... Um, so uh, at the end of the school year, they were uh, they had posted all the scholarships, and my name wasn't on any of them. And there are only three criteria: academic excellence, check; you know, um, financial need, check. Um, the third one was uh, something like spiritual stability and something or other like that. So Ooh, that sounds <laughs> that sounds loaded. Yeah, it was a little loaded. So my friends go to the administration. And they say, "How come Paul?" Hasn't, he's not on any of the scholarships. And they said, well, we've determined he's not a good investment for the denomination. Ooh. Yeah. And they were right. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, but because of that, I left school, worked up in the oil fields in northern Alberta to pay off all my education debt and save up some money. I got accepted in L.A. Um, to finish my undergraduate and go on uh, to graduate work. And... Um, and a friend of mine who's a psychologist said, you know, there's a guy in this little town called Gresham, Oregon, that I think you need to meet. You're going to go right past there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I came and I was really at a crossroads. You know, that was the summer I sort of put my faith on the uh, on the fence. Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, it's really struggling with a whole bunch of other stuff, too. So I'm on my way. I come through. I meet this guy. He's, he is so different. And that's what Stan had said to me. This guy is very different than you. And um, turned out that he had been a warlock. You know, he had actually trained 24 witches and, uh, and then had a massive encounter with Jesus and had gone back and, and introduced 23 of the 24 into a relationship with Jesus before. Uh, and he's in his, like, mid to late 20s, married with a little child and so I come through here as, as a rational, intellectual, you know, because that's what I did. You, you, if you're broken from the neck down, you hide in your head. And mm -hmm. that's what I'd done. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he just reads my mail. I mean, he just, you know, he's the kind of guy that goes down to this corner and this corner and talks to the angel who's down there, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, what? Now, it's not that I didn't understand the supernatural. I'm a missionary kid from the highlands of New Guinea. So in a spirit worshiping culture. So that's, but it was just like in a Western culture, it's a little odd. And, um, and he says, you got to come to this, this church. And that's where I got introduced to Jerry Cook and East Hill Church in Gresham, Oregon. Mm. And, and I'm, 
I'm CMA background, Christian Missionary Alliance, and that's holiness movement that sort of went Baptist. Um, and the the offshoot was Foursquare. Oh, okay. And so Foursquare and CMA were stepsisters, but Foursquare was more Pentecostal. We were cessationist, you know, so there was quite a big divide, even though all of our forebears in terms of denominational history were all raving Pentecostals, you know, A.B. Simpson and, and A.W. Tozer and all those guys. But um, but I go to a Foursquare church and I'm going like, there's smart Pentecostals? Because <laughs> we grew up where you didn't even go to their camps. You couldn't take the risk, you know. So, so I meet Jerry Cook and Jerry immediately impresses me his his style he's not a preacher he's a storyteller his intellectuality um and i'm going like maybe i don't need to go to la maybe i need mm -hmm. to hang here because there's stuff happening inside this community that i don't know uh i just feel the need and drawn here so i immediately started looking around for a school to go to to finish my undergraduate degree and only one was still taking students that was warner pacific okay so yeah. i ended up one year at warner and then uh, at East Hill Church is where I met Kim. You know, so people say, why did you stop and organize it? Well, I met a woman, you know. Yes, that's a and, good reason. Yeah, it's a good reason. It's a great reason. And um, been in the area ever since. And how uh, you're, you're coming off the plains of Canada. Yeah. Was it a pretty dramatic culture shift? Well, Canada was a culture shift for me. Right, that's you know, true. Yes. Coming, coming to the West. And, and um, by the time that I was in my late teens, early 20s. And I, I got here in 78. So I was, I was in my, in my 20s. And um, uh, I was, I understand culture. I understand, I know how to move inside of it pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's part of the reason that I write the way that I do is because of that kind of heritage. But um, uh, it was, I liked the Northwest. I've and ever since the more I travel, the more I like the Northwest. I like how um, irreligious it is. On the one hand, um, you know, I've, I'm very grounded in indigenous kinds of thinking, and the, the Northwest is like that. I also like the weather here. I like the gl the gloominess. It seemed to write better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like uh, sunshine comes with an expectation. You know. Yeah, you gotta be. You gotta be fit. You gotta be something. Uh, yes, you gotta right. be out there doing something. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, the the point you made about indigenous the the culture being somewhat indigenous here. What can you explain that a little more? Which is more? They're more connected to the earth. They're more connected to the rivers, the waters, the ocean. You know, um, there's there is a uh, non-compliance to institutionalism that's in the Northwest. That I like. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's a good way to put that. Yeah. And you, but you see it as, as partly coming from a, a connection with the land. I do. And, and, and I think I had a big, um, I was influenced largely by not only the culture I grew up in, but also in BC. We lived in a number of different places in British Columbia and, and the First Nations people had quite a presence. And so there was always this sense. And Canada, I think, has a, has a greater responsiveness to First Nations folks than than um, the U.S. does generally, but there is a, there is a sense of respect here for divergent opinions and points of view that's in the Northwest. You know, it's like I tell people, you know, it's easier to talk about Jesus in the Northwest than pretty much anywhere else in the U.S. because 
you have to get through doctrine before you get to Jesus anywhere in the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. and um, and it's it's like really, so um, and, and I've always been drawn to uh, diverse diversity in culture. So yeah, this was a this was a good fit for me, and then um, raising a family here and. Um, yeah, it's it's been a great experience. I I love the Northwest, and like I say, it's got more shades of green than anywhere else in the country. Yes, oh, which is really it's like your eyes get starved after you've been away for a while, and you come back and you go like, <gasps> okay, I can kind of relax. When when we were living down in Phoenix, I'd be like, you know, it's pretty green down here. After, oh my you know, After a few months, you'd be like, there's green. There's like there's like five trees Look, over there. There's a leaf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then you'd come back here and you'd be like, "Oh man, yeah, Jeez, no, it's just the scope of it all." Well, the deciduous and the conifers all mixed up together, and, yes, and just the blends of them are just beautiful. And down as you go south, it's all kudzu green. You know, it's basically right. You know that but, the kudzu used to. I, when I've been down in the south, it's uh, the kudzu kind of gives me an anxiety or something like that. This you know, this yeah. this green kind of covering everything. It, it still they're looks after cool. You. Yeah, yes, after right. You. The kudzu. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you you uh, meet your wife at, at uh, was that at Warner or was at, that at I was Hill? at East Hill Church. And okay. After Warner, I graduated from Warner, and East Hill hired me to work with the twenty to thirty year olds. The only time I've ever worked for a church. And um, and as a side note, Renee Greenwich, who and the Greenwich family have been here in the in the Portland area for for a long time, and our you know Henry has a church over here, and they're they're built into the culture here. Uh, but Renee was uh, the music person at East Hill, and she is a large black African-American woman. And I built the persona for Papa partly off of Renee Greenwich. Hmm. And um, in fact, uh, she passed away a few years ago, and I was visiting her one time at the care facility, and and she goes, Paul, how come you and I were the, always friends? We were always friends. And I said, well, that's easy. We were the only two black people in that white church. <laughs> She goes, you're right, you're right. And <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I was in charge of the 20 to 30-year-olds. Um, we had the big thing going in Portland at the time. We had anywhere from 300 to 700 on a Friday night. And Oh, wow. And uh, really great music. And um, one night, Kim walks in with two of her five sisters, and and I notice her, and I'm in charge. And so... I immediately changed what we were planning to do so we could break up into groups of two and pray for each other. <laughs> oh, that's power that's crafty. corrupts. Yeah, it's yeah. really bad. That's re- and it got worse from there. But um, power corrupts. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> to to talk about Nietzsche. Yeah. So you guys, uh, okay. So that, but that does develop into a relationship. Yes, uh, through a, a really wild series of circumstances, I. Um, I'm told that during this period of time, she and I became friends, like friends, just friends. And, uh, but during this period of time, I got in, interested in this girl named Cheryl. Now, the reason that I don't know if that's true or not is that, that when, and I was living out in Gresham in a duplex with, with uh, a couple guys. And, and um, so at, at one point, I'd borrowed Kim's car and it was over on East Hill. This is before they built down in, in the, the bottom part of Gresham, but it was up on the hill. And um, so on Monday morning, I was running over to get the car for her to drive it back to her duplex because I'd borrowed it for the weekend. And um, and I got hit by a high-risk 17-year-old driver going down Division Street, and he nailed me in the center turning lane Oh dang! At, okay. at about 55 miles an hour. 
and he knocked me a half a Yikes. block. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. And I landed in front of Jerry Cook's house as he's walking out the door to get in his car to go to the airport to go speak somewhere. And he's an ex-EMT. So he was on me like instantly. Within two minutes, an off-duty ambulance was coming one direction and two cops the other direction. And they all converge. And uh, they say I never lost consciousness, but I was in a, a cerebral loop. That is, I, I would say like, what happened? They go like, Paul, you were in a really bad accident. You were hit by a car. We're going to take you to the hospital. Oh, so what happened? You know, over mm. and over and over. Mm. Um, they did surgery. They uh, they couldn't give me anesthetic because of the potential coma problems. And they said I screamed a lot, which I'm glad I don't remember that part. But I come to conscious awareness and and I know I'm in a, ho I'm in a hospital somewhere, but I don't know what year it is and I don't know what country I'm in. You know, all these wow. things got looped together and and i didn't know one person who came through the door wow and um were I, they familiar I, people ah uh, yeah well these are like kim kim yeah. came to visit okay she bursts into tears she runs out because i'm really wrecked you know and and i'm thinking well she's cute i wonder who she is <laughs> you know because i didn't even know who i was and and as i look back on that period of time this became one of the most peaceful times of my life I had no baggage. I have no history. I had no, I had nothing. I, you know, the only relationship I knew I had was Jesus. And that was like. That showing through all of that. Right through all of it. It's the only one I knew. So I knew I was going to be okay. Hmm. And uh, Jesus had always, since my childhood, had been the, the one person who never left. Hmm. And um, so now I'm like, oh, okay, this is good. But then my memories start coming back, you know, chunks of it. And then with it came my baggage and my addictions and, you know, all my secrets and all that. Mm -hmm. So it was a short-lived, uh, but some things never came back. Like Cheryl, Cheryl, I have one little memory of Cheryl sitting, talking to her in a car. But yeah, so she married this other guy. But, um, and then I went, I, you know, I was trying to pick up my history and my memory. I took a drive back into Saskatchewan with a couple guys from down here. And on that trip, I I thought I heard God really speak to me on the inside, you know, the inside voice and mm -hmm. say, you need to marry Kim. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. I wonder how I should ask her, you know, because we haven't even really dated or anything. So I figured if I asked her in a group setting, it would be safer. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. See, okay. I told you it got worse, <laughs> right? So when we got back from that trip... I, I put together this little gathering of about 15 of my friends and I wrote them all cards, you know, and really uh, turns out that I am creative and nice cards. And, and they had to read the card out loud before they actually pre-read it. And Kim's just said, will you marry me? That's what her said. And, and it was a nice, cute little card. And, and um, I've shuffled hers to the bottom. You and know? you guys have dated? No. No. No, no. Okay. So, so we go around the circle and I'd hand the, you know, I shuffled them up, but I kept Kim's on the bottom because I'm figuring like once she reads her card, you know, the evening's going to go one way or the other. And um, so when she gets her card, she opens it up and she says, will you, mm -hmm. and, and the thought that went through her mind, and she would tell you this, if I say no, he will never ask me again, which is brilliant on her part because it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I had too much at risk, you know, with performance orientation. If I, if, I, if I say no, he will never ask me again. But if I say yes, I can back out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh -huh. that's smart. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, yeah. So we were married 11 days later. Wow. I know. 
I know. And this September, we'll be married 40 years. Oh, my. Wow. I know. I know. Totally bad. I mean, it's just like all the wrong things, you know. But but I don't know if I'd have made it 12 days. I think it was absolutely the grace of God. Kim saved my life. Mm. And she paid way, not way too high a price. She paid a really high price, an unfair price for my healing. But... Um, but she saved it. And um, thankfully, she comes from a very powerful family. She was not a meek, mild, submitted mm-hmm. woman, you know. She's, mm-hmm. I, I, her and her five sisters are called the Force. And may the Force be with you, you know. And, uh, and I talk about her as the wrath of God. She, I married the wrath of God. And it's really partly the intensity of her fury that actually pushed me to deal with my stuff. Mm. And, uh, and that's... A, you know, that process started really after Matthew was born, who is our sixth child. We have six kids, and, and then I blew up the world. Uh, Kim, Kim caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. Oh. And, that, and then after that, it was the choice was face Kim and face this, deal with my stuff or kill myself. That's it. Mm. And that started an 11-year journey because it took Kim and I 11 years to heal. And that's the weekend represented in the shack with Mackenzie. That whole 11-year period. Yeah. So did you kind of, after the end of that 11 years, did you feel inspired to... Well, Kim, believe it or not, it's, I've, I've written all my life. I've, I, you know, but you write stuff for your friends and family, mm-hmm. poetry, songs, and short stories or whatever. And they love it because they're your friends and family, you know. Right. But Kim always loved my, my writing. And so for about four years, she had been saying, you know, someday... As a gift for our children, would you write something that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box? Later, she says, I was thinking four to six pages, but she didn't tell me that. And the year I turned 50, which was the 12th year, right, after the 11 years, because hmm. the 11 years started January 4th, 1994, at about 2.15 in the afternoon when I got the one-sentence phone call from Kim. And um, and that took take me all the way to the end of 2004. Well, 2005 is the year I turned 50. And I'm, you know, and that that involved therapy. I'd pulled the yellow pages off the shelf and found a, a therapist, total stranger, walked in and he he was absolutely the right person for me. And, and... Um, that was how you found Scott, Scott Mitchell. Yeah. Was through, just through the, the yellow, yellow pages. pages. Wow. I pulled the yellow pages off the shelf and I looked under counselors, and I start going down, starting with the A's. And I look at, and I see Agape Youth and Family Services, which is owned and, and run by Byron Kaler, who is still, he has his own practice in Milwaukee. And Byron did the intake on me, and, and you know, total strangers. I just, I, and their little box said, we specialize in sexual abuse histories, hmm. which is part of my great sadness, both in the tribal culture and then in uh, missionary boarding school. And it's like, um, we specialize in sexual abuse history. So I walk in there, and that's the first time in my life that I say to another human being, can you help me? You know, because I'd always become a performer. That was my coping survival mechanism. Thin layer of, you know, perfectionist performance covering up an ocean of shame. But you can you could handle everything is kind of how you... Oh, I created a facade, right? Because I'm not letting anybody inside my shack, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. shack is the house on the inside. It's the broken heart. It's the broken soul. And, you know, between the sexual abuse and, and the loss of belonging anywhere, 
um, or selling your body to belong or, you know, uh, exchange. Or And my furious father who didn't have a chip for being a dad and, mm. and um, some of those great sadnesses as a child. The abuse started before I was five mm. in, the, in the culture. And they were... They were my family. I didn't even realize cognitively that I was white till I went to boarding school. Hmm. And that was a big disappointment. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, tied into I'm still this. a little pissed about it. So, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, uh, that was another great gift of God, Scott. And, you know, I go in there and I sit down and I say, look, my, my life's over as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. You know, I created this facade outside the shack right? That I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. But I had an ocean of shame. That you could paint as, as soon as you could? As fast as I could pick up people's expectations. As soon as you knew that, you'd be like... Yeah, it's, the okay. question is, what do you want me to be for you? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And, um, and so I'd be the funny person, or I'd be the intelligent person, or I'd be, you know... And, and it's not like, I'm, I'm not telling you my secrets, because you will hate me as much as I do. Mm. You know? Mm. That's the ocean of shame. Sure. And yeah. so, um, but, you know, Kim is uh, part of a, like I said, of uh, an earth family. They come from North Dakota, Minnesota, mm -hmm. you know, so no Fifty Shades of nothing. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they just um, kept, you know, pushing down through my performance. Because here's, here's a great secret uh, that shame employs a powerful weapon that shame employs when uh, shame is the underlying reality of your life um, you lose shame destroys your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation so when we were first married and kim would say like i'd be working on laundry or something and she'd say paul you know don't mix the colors with the whites right she's talking about doing laundry right she's making an observation trying to help me learn Sure. Right? But remember, I have a perfectionist performance orientation. So that's just like she just pokes a hole right down through that thin layer and up comes the shame. So she says that. What do I hear her say? I hear her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. Mm. Right? Mm. Because shame has destroyed your ability to distinguish between a value statement and an observation. I, yeah. 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 So if any of you out there, if you... If you're with someone who, and you just say the slightest thing and they just suddenly go off in one way or the other and you go like, where did that come from? It's either fear or shame, which are always, almost always linked anyway. And um, so sit in front of Scott, you know, it's like, I don't need someone to ask me how I'm feeling about this because I'm riding the edge of suicide. Mm -hmm. I just need to know, can you get me from A to Z or Z? You know, and I go, he goes, yep. Yeah. It'll take a, a year and a half. I said, I'm in. He said, yeah, right. Everybody that sits where you are, they always say they're in. But after a few months, they'll bail out right before the really hard stuff. You know, they'll feel a little better about themselves and a little more in control. I did my therapy. I Yeah, I got it all figured out now. Yeah. Right? Even, you know, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm way smarter than this therapist, you know. Right. And, um, but I'd hit the bottom. I really had hit the bottom. My, my reason I went to therapy was not to, save my marriage. I'd already blown that up. And the reason I went to therapy was not to fix Kim. I mean, I couldn't even fix myself. I went, I went to see if there was a way I could change. If I couldn't, I'm, I'm done because I am not willing to hurt anybody like this ever again. 
And we didn't make my adultery the new secret. It, I mean, Kim's dad lived with us. So I had to talk to him. You had to share all of that. Yeah. And then with her family and then with my family and then with the extended, all of our relationships, the community knew about it. And, and was their response, um, like I, I'm assuming that eventually they were forgiving and connective with you. Yes. Was there a point where they were just kind of livid or? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay. You know, yeah. the, the force I told you about. Um, yeah, and she Kim was the like the favorite aunt among the the, the nephews, and I mean they wanted to kill me. Mm. And um, uh, Kim's dad, he responded so different than my dad. You know, uh, my dad was a, a violent disciplinarian, didn't know what to do with his own fury. But he comes. I didn't know how broken he was until much later, and uh, his history. And uh, Kim's dad never raised a voice never raised a fist. And I, I got defenses for fury in, in terms of raised voices and fists. I got none for kindness. Mm. But I saw in his face how much I hurt him. Mm. And every day for a long time, right? Yeah. So it took years. I mean, forgiveness is one thing. That's something that's in our... That's, we have the ability to forgive. Now, forgiveness is for the victim, just to free the victim more than it is to do anything for the perpetrator. Um, that's a way to divest yourself from a corpse that you carry around poisoning all your relationships. Mm. And if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain of forgiveness, be picked up and cast into the sea. That's the context of that verse. And um, But reconciliation, that's the rebuilding of trust. Mm. And man... When that happens, it is an absolute miracle, greater than raising the dead. You know, raising the dead is temporary. <laughs> Reconciliation, the rebuilding of trust is permanent. And, uh, and man, and that, that's what I said, it took Kim and I 11 years to heal. 11 years before she absolutely trusted me without any question. Mm. And she does. Mm. And she has every reason to. But... You know, the components of reconciliation on the, you know, and reconciliation is for the perpetrator. Um, that's why in the shack and the movie and stuff, you never see the perpetrator's face because the issue is forgiveness and you don't need a face for forgiveness. Because mm -hmm. if you're waiting for somebody to change in order to forgive them, good luck with that. Some of them are dead and most of them don't care. <laughs> right, right. Right. But reconciliation needs a face. And that's tough. Mm -hmm. That's really hard. That's a hard journey. And, um, but the perpetrator has to own what they've done. They have to specifically confess what they've done. They have to specifically ask for forgiveness what they've done and then change over time, which is repentance, right? You change over time so that somebody can watch your life and say, they are not the same person. So I'm, I'm willing maybe slowly and incrementally to take the risk of trust. Mm. And I'll pull it back if I, if I see it in danger. But then if I see a consistency over time, and it, time for us was 11 years, 11 years before, you know, she sat in a circle of friends who all knew my story. And she says to them in front of me, I never thought I would ever say this. It was all worth it. Mm. And she's not saying, She's not justifying adultery because there is no justification for betrayal. There isn't. Yes. You know, the ends don't justify the means ever, right? The, the cross, which is our torture device, is never justified even by 
the salvation of the entire cosmos, right? Doesn't justify a torture device. And uh, so she's not doing that. She's saying that there's, there's nothing so broken that God can't heal it and nothing so lost that God doesn't know where it is or something so dead that God doesn't know how to grow something in it. And, and part of the beauty of the cross for me, it's our torture device. God has never built a cross ever. We, you know, we built them. We build them. Yeah. And, and, but here, you know, the cross becomes this iconic uh, symbol of death and separation. You know, even though separation is not a reality, it, it symbolizes separation. And, um, and how is God to deal with the lostness of those he loves, the human race, right? How is God supposed to deal with that? Well, how he does is by submitting to it. And he climbs onto our torture device and by allowing himself to be killed at our hands, experiences separation, the delusion of it that we're lost inside of. But the beauty of it is not just that. Not only does he destroy the power of death, separation, the myth of it, he transforms the this symbol of death into an icon and a monument of grace. That's, that's beyond, that's too beautiful for words. You know, that um, I'm wearing a ring that has a cross on it. That's a torture device. That's an execution device. And, um, and, and yet it has become precious to us. It means that there is no depth of loss that God will not climb into with us. And there's no brokenness of the human heart that is so deep that God cannot transform that story into an icon and a monument of grace. Hmm. Right? That's a beautiful thing. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's why there is hope in this, in this horrible atrocity uh, of the killing of an innocent that was perpetrated by us. You know, yeah, we have all these theologies that said that God did it to his own son, but that's just BS, hmm. you know, right. and, and, and destructive on so many levels. That makes violence the greatest expression of love. And, and how can you allow for that to even be a possibility? So, you know, when I wrote The Shack, all I, I was trying to do is write a story for my kids for Christmas. And because uh, one, I had nothing, I had nothing to give them that year. Really, we were we had nothing, and mm -hmm. uh, and also I I finally felt healthy enough to do this. Like, oh my gosh, look, I have no addictions, I have no secrets, I'm the same person in every situation. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> Joy had become a constant companion, and uh, and I was finally a child for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm willing to just respond to whatever's in front of me inside the grace of just one day at a time. And I'm like, all right, I can do this. I can do what Kim's been asking me to do. And that's, and I was on the train. I was working three jobs, and one of them was I got the train from Gresham to downtown Portland. This is, that's where you wrote most of the manuscript, right? Yeah, was yeah I was taking on the, the train. Max in. Yeah, 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 to downtown. Because I had 40 minutes each way, and, um, and I wrote most of the manuscript on the train. Getting it, trying to get it done for Christmas. Made 15 copies at Office Depot in Gresham because Kinko's was more expensive across the street. And, um, 
on their little photocopier, put a little spiral bound thing, made it look pretty, you know. Nice, yeah. The little the black yeah. spiral or yeah, the yeah, the black, black spiral yes, with I the like plastic those. cover, right? Yes, yeah. And uh, six copies went to the kids. Kim and I kept one, and the extras I gave to my friends, and I went back to work. Never once thought, oh, I should publish this. Yeah, really, you didn't think that as you were writing it, no. there was no sense of no. taking this out to a broader uh -uh, audience. No, I wrote it for my kids, and I'm trying to say to my kids. Let me tell you about the God um, hmm. who actually showed up and healed my heart, not mm. the God I grew up with. Because mm. I grew up with Gandalf with a bad attitude God. Yeah. you know, And to have God the Father come through the door inside the imagery of a large black African-American woman, a Renee Greenwich, you know. That was to as far away from that kind of modern evangelical, distant omni-being that Jesus came to save us from, as I could get, that I don't believe is is God at all. Yeah. And uh, but I'm trying to use different imagery to to shift the box, you know. Yes. And uh, I have this line that I think I got from the Holy Spirit. It's the only time you'll find God in a box is because God wants to be where we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> I'll hang out in this box briefly. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So, I mean, we build boxes. God doesn't build boxes. Mm. And, but that's how we, you know, create power and we feel superior and we feel like cat, we categorize, which is, by the way, the term that's used for the, the great Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is the Greek word is categoro or categorizomai. So that was part, are you saying that's part of his role was like splitting everyone up into these different groups? Of or? course. It's mm -hmm. like, and we do that. We participate. When we, yes. when we have an us versus them, we have, we have joined the great Satan in the accusation against the humanity of, of uh, the brotherhood of humanity. You know, this, the, because remember Paul stands up on Mars Hill, right? And uh, he's talking to the pagans and the Greeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he says two things that are just, outrageous. One of them, he says, you are all God's children, right? And then he quotes the hymn to Zeus, right? The omni-being, the hymn to Zeus. And he says, in him, you live and move and have your being, this unknown God, right? So he's saying to people who've never done the magic stuff, you know, to, to get inside, right? To be part of us versus them. Mm -hmm. he, he tells them that they're children. They're, they're already children of God. And that not only that, they live and move and have their being in him. So there's no separation, mm. right? Just the fact that we feel separated doesn't mean that it's real. Right. That's the, our ontology cannot exist in separation. This is the early church, right? That all creation is created inside the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, inside of Jesus specifically, not anything that has come into being is coming to being apart from him. Or Colossians, it says, everything, both the invisible and the visible, were created in him and are now sustained and held together in him, for him, by him, through him. Right? In him you live and move and have your being. Which means, one, you won't meet a person who's already not in Christ, you're right? right? Yes. Everybody's yeah. already in I Christ because yeah. the early church would say, if you're not in Christ, you would lapse into non-being because mm -hmm. there's nothing outside of that. Mm -hmm. All of creation is in him. And the second thing it's saying is that your, your family of origin is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though you may not know it or want it. Mm. It's just the way that it is. So that means, and this, is, this happened right after the, the massacre uh, in uh, Christchurch in New Zealand. And uh, 
And the Sunday after that, I was speaking somewhere, and I, I started with, do you think Muslims are your brothers and sisters? And I, used, I, I went to the Acts 15 passage, you know, or you could go to one of Paul's writings of from, from whom every family derives its origin, mm -hmm. right? And you go like, therefore, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ Church, you know, our Muslim brothers and sisters. And we've got to get away from this us versus them dichotomy on every level. Our identity is, and this is a hard thing when people, they, they're trying to find a sense of identity and so they wanna create it um, out of some external uh, categorization. Yeah, white's not an identity. You know, black's not an identity. And that's a tough one because, yes, we have violated history and tradition and cultural um, beauty on so many levels. But our identity is human. Our identity is not male or female, um, slave or free or, you know, I'm quoting Galatians with Paul, um, or Jew or Greek. It's not, it's not ethnicity. But in terms of my humanity, I bring my history with me. And for you to hear my story is for you to walk on the holy ground of, of my history and, and be the same for me to listen to yours. So story, it matters because we're, each one of us is a story and we carry all that with us. That's, that seems, I, I've just had that moment, you know, driving around the city lately of like, this is, there's just these endless stories and each, each of them uh, within its own telling, it would be fascinating. Um, I think that's why eternity will take so long. <laughs> yes, yeah. I <laughs> love that idea. Well, it's because we're going to mm. unravel mm. the thread, right? We're going to yes. find out who who was connected to who and how they were connected to who that got you to where you're at, right? Who Who is that blue-haired little old lady praying in her prayer closet in backwoods, Indiana, because there was something on her heart and she didn't even know who she was praying for. Mm. We're going to find that thread, right? This is, I love that, I love that you're saying that because I, this was the conversation uh, my wife and I had as she was, as she was dying. She, she, we, we envisioned, or she just said, um, you know, I, I just imagine that we're just sitting with our Abba watching, watching this story that he's put together, Bin, yeah. binge watching for, yeah, you could do that for centuries. Well, absolutely. I, and I'm not, I think it's even more than that. It's not binge watching. We will actually trace back through. And we're going to have to deal with the losses that we've perpetrated as well. Hmm. You know, hmm. just because you slip through the veil doesn't mean you know how to play the piano, right? <laughs> yes. It's like you, you're going to take your baggage with you. It doesn't eradicate you. Everybody is salted with fire, right? The fire is the love of God. I used to be afraid of the wrath of God, but I'm not. I count on it. Do um, you know that the, the early church looked at judgment very differently than our modern forensic way of looking at it? We, we created a courtroom scene and then uh, proposed that God was a judge like in a courtroom. Yeah. And the purpose of a judge in a courtroom is to say guilty, innocent, and punish you, right? This is your sentence, right? The early church didn't have a courtroom scene. They had the great physician who you go to and he will judge you. But the whole purpose of a doctor's judgment is to determine how you're sick and how you got sick and propose what? Not a sentence of punishment, but a pathway for healing. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that is the judgment of God. 
The wrath of God, therefore, is the love of God that is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind in you, mm. right? So I think we're going to have to deal with our losses um, after. If we don't deal with them now, we're going to deal with them. You're, you're, you're not going to be just automatically reconciled um, in terms of the hurt you perpetrate. It's like, oh, it didn't matter. It matters. And this is, this is part of the, the conversation about why evil even exists, you know, and it underlies the shack and the other stuff that I've written. And that is, I think God has a greater respect for humanity than we do. Hmm. That the, the question about free will, even though we understand that will is coerced on so many levels, we get that. But my ability to say no means that my ability to say yes matters. Right? Yes. And if I don't have an ability to say no or yes, then there is no love and no possibility of love. You know, we live in the only universe where love is possibility. Because yeah, God could have not just could have just not created. That's one possibility. A second one, God could have created in which everything was mechanical. Everything just did what it was wired to do. Right. Or God could have created human beings who thought they were free but really weren't, you know, which would have made God a big torture like uh, in the scientist. Ma- yeah. In the Matrix, matrix or yeah. something, yeah. Well, but the Matrix had this had this universe because you had the ability to disconnect yourself from the Matrix. Right. So there's, you know, but this universe where human beings have, have the ability to say no to God, to love, to goodness, to kindness... You know, to uh, to be furious against that which is wrong or evil, right? God had never originates evil, but created us with the capacity to say no to love, which is evil, to to in our mythology to separate our minds uh, from love and life, which is death, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we live in a universe where love is possible and death does not take away that capacity, right? Your ability to choose is not, does not end when your mortality ends on this side right? or else there's no love or relationship post-mortem, hmm. which is absurd. And if that's the goal of God is to take away our ability to choose, why didn't he begin that way, hmm. right? That makes him a cosmic scientist seeing how much pain we can inflict on each other. No, this is a God who doesn't run from suffering, runs toward it and climbs into it and is with us in it. But that suffering, a lot of it is due to human beings making choices against good, against kindness, against forgiveness, against patience, against beauty, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And God submits to it and climbs into it with us, right? we want to we want to say on the one hand, well, I, I I would like God just to make my decisions for me. No, you wouldn't. I mean, on the one hand, it would seem to be like such a better solution, but on the other hand, no. You know, this uh, this grand capacity to say yes or no is both awe inspiring and almost too terrible to endure, mm. and we see it played out not just on global scales, we see it in our own relationships. And, but I, I'm an optimist. I, I think that, that there is a God who is good all the time that's behind all of this. 
and is a redeeming genius and never justifies evil and never is the author of it, but has fully climbed in to join us in it to help us move in a direction out of it. Mm. And, and I believe that the world is getting to be a better place and I'm, I'm watching it. And it's not because people join an institutional religious system. You know, I, I'm glad Jesus was never a Christian so he doesn't have to act like one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but he, he got out of here before they, they created that moniker. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the you're saying the kingdom is 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 blooming and sprouting. Yes, and I see it. I one of the most beautiful things that happened as a result of the shack because the shack, everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote it. Identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, all in place. Mm -hmm. I was working three jobs. We had nothing, and I was content for the first time in my life, like 24 hours a day. And it's just like enjoy is a constant companion and. We have nothing, and I'm like, this is good. So the shack didn't add anything, any of those to me, but it gave me an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. And that's too beautiful for words. Mm. And, and I get to do it all around the planet. Mm. So I get yeah. to travel, and I get to watch as people are disengaging themselves from the institutional structures. They're finding the beauty of sacred space as it is speaking that all space is sacred, right? Mm, and so mm -hmm. they, they're, they're allowing themselves to treasure what we have created, even inside the mythologies of our religious systems. You know, and our religion, religion is mythological. That is, God has never been religious, never. Right, so religion is a human thing. We we do this. It's, it's a, our reaching. I've yeah. heard that described yeah. as our reaching for him. Yes, and and it's a mix of beautiful things and terrible things, and and that's true for every religion on the planet. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's like no, the Jesus way and the person of Jesus is distinctive from religion. It's about the centrality of relationship. That's partly why I love the Trinity so much because mm -hmm. it means that. God has always been inside relationship mm. because a God who's ever been alone cannot love by nature. Right. Yeah. Right. right. I, yeah. I've heard, I've been hearing, I, I, I was still having a hard time wrapping my mind around that, but I, I, I'm hearing that lately that, that you, you there has there to was, be an other. Yeah. There always had to be this flow of, yeah. of love back and back and forth. Yeah. And that's why there are some religions that cannot, they cannot posit a God who is love because God would then need the creation and the creation, if God needs the creation in order to love, then the creation is greater than God because it fills a need in God. Mm. Therefore, God cannot be love, which mm. is totally logical if God has ever been alone. Right, right. right. And but, but we have this mystery of three persons in the oneness of God that have always been in the great dance of relationship and therefore relationship and love are grounded in eternity, not, mm. not just in our temporary capacity. Thanks for listening to the inaugural episode of the Stark and Main podcast. We hope you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with author William Paul Young. We'll be back with part two shortly.